climbing aboard planes and getting in the way of the subway and saying, we need to decarbonize now. I don't think that they're mainstream. I don't think that, you know, this sort of newfound recognition around climate has made them mainstream, though I think there's a whole interesting discussion to be had about how does that feed into the, the bigger dynamic. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide, and at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials. Today we welcome Justin Warland, Senior Correspondent for Time. He covers climate change and the intersection of policy, politics, and society for the media giant. Hello, Justin, and welcome. Thanks for joining us today. I would like for you to, if you don't mind, give us some background on your role with Time. And I know you've been covering climate change in the industry for quite some time. Maybe you can give us a little background and what you're working on. Yeah, I've been at Time for about eight years and on the climate beat for seven of those years, the climate at energy environment beat. And it's been an interesting time to go from, frankly, a time when the interest when I first started on this beat was relatively minimal to really, this has become a core issue here at time. And I think for a lot of journalistic entities right now, there's, I'm watching a lot of things, thinking about the best way to dive deep into everything from federal policy coming out of Washington to all of these changes, uh, in investment trends, and I'm particularly interested in the growing commitment from the private sector around climate and thinking about that. I have this cool opportunity where I, I think about, I get to cover and write about essentially everything as it relates to energy and climate. And certainly there's a lot that I'm thinking about and, and eager to dive into some of it more specifically. So that brings me to another question about your coverage and what you're hearing as you're talking to individuals in both the private and the public sector. Do you think there are broader implications that we're missing when focusing only on emissions? Yeah, I think that the big question that is grappled with, has been grappled with in, in a sense, but is, is growing and I think is going to be an increasingly uh, relevant theme this year and certainly more so in the future, is this question of where emissions reductions meet societal implications. How do we see the changes that are going to be brought about by emissions reductions reflected in everyday lives and in society? And then what is the sort of effect of that circling back into policy or into, you know, even investment? So to make that more concrete, because it's a, a little abstract, thinking about energy prices and thinking about if climate policy increases energy prices, what does that mean to the average consumer, the average citizen? And how does that affect the way that they vote, how they participate in, in democratic institutions, and is that a threat to climate policy? Um, but it's all very, it's a little abstract, but I think we're, we're starting to see how that uh, actually plays out right now. And of course, there are different 
conversations about what the solution might be. I think the way that a lot of climate activists might frame it as the just transition. There's other ways to think about it, just thinking about just uh, any, any way that, that, that climate policy, energy policy can reflect the needs and demands of, of everyday consumers and citizens. So I think what you're saying is it all needs to be interconnected. You've got the public, you've got consumers, you've got society as a whole, you've got the climate activists, and you've got governments and regulatory agencies who really all need to work together in a continual loop and not isolate themselves in a vacuum because that's not going to get anything done. Nothing will move as quick as it needs to. Is that what you're implying here? Yeah, I think that is the implication, right, is that if you have one area, one segment that moves too far ahead of everything else, then you lead to a, a sort of dis- dysfunction because everything does need to, to work together, which is, but that's not to say that, that one thing, that, 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 whatever, the private sector should move slowly because there might be a lag in policy or that policy should move slowly because citizens aren't there. But it is to say that as all this unfolds, it's going to be really messy. And I think that's one thing that I'm, as a journalist, very intrigued, very excited. Excited is the wrong word, but I'm very interested to observe and to cover. And I think I would say, as I'm watching this, I think it's something that a lot of policymakers, a lot of people who work in civil society and and businesses are just beginning to grapple with. But I think your framing is exactly right. It's how I'd be thinking about it in your shoes. Absolutely. And I think we'll move away just a bit right now from dysfunction, because we all know that exists. When you're talking to global leaders in the space, are you finding similar dynamics or are they coming at it in a different way or a slower or a faster way? Can you expand on that a little bit? There's so many ways you could cut the the different demographics, the different group countries and regions into different buckets. And of course, there's even subnational dynamics, whether that's obviously in the US, but in you know places like India or, or China even and within the EU. But I, I think that there definitely is a a trend, a a a increased recognition of the challenge and an increased commitment to, you know, trying to meet the climate challenge with policy. I think that's particularly the case in the EU, but it's also true even in places that get a lot of negative attention, places like China and India. Now, there's this big problem, of course, which is that it's a lot easier to say that you're eager to do that and even to come up with some of the sort of targets that they've you know been talking about it's a lot harder to implement the exact policies to get there and of course places like the EU broadly as a block are further along uh, in that than than you know places in many places in the global south etc but but the commitment is there and I think you're definitely hearing that from leaders that I talk to and in their sort of public remarks having said that and I, I know you want to move from the dysfunctions I do think they are <laughs> concerned about 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 this, right? It's something that I talked to Franz Timmermans, who heads, he's the EU, he runs climate policy in the EU, is running the Green Deal in the EU. And he said to me that nothing will happen if, the, if society, if people are not actually behind it. And so he brought that up when I asked about sort of ratcheting up and strengthening some of their climate policy. So there, this is, there is definitely uh, excitement, but also, uh, or rather, there's definitely a commitment, but there's also a concern about making sure that everybody is behind it in a sustainable way. 
So speaking directly about the EU, I know you think that Germany is certainly a big player in that, in climate change and how the policies are developing. Can you talk a little bit about Germany and maybe some of the other countries and some of the leaders you've spoken with? I'm really eager to see how the new government grapples with climate change. Of course, it's a coalition government, including the Greens, with Baerbach, the, the Green leader, as foreign minister. I think, frankly, it's a little early to say. They're, they, the new government took up power with in the midst of an energy crisis. They're dealing, again, with some of the sort of social implications of how do we deal with rising costs and how people feel about that. I'll be interested to see whether we whether Germany has a, a green foreign policy, whether that's something that, you know, having the leader of the Greens in that position as foreign minister can actually execute. I think there's like, as I understand it, some conversation about whether the chancellor wants to retain foreign policy within that within his sphere, and, and so therefore limiting her ability to do that. All of which is to say, frankly, I think it's very, it's early days, but Germany is obviously so influential within Europe and within the EU, within in Brussels, definitely watching closely that, that picture. And I think uh, when we've spoken before, you mentioned something about the leader in Kazakhstan res- having to resign over climate issues. Is, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, I would say Kazakhstan um, was an interesting way to start the year. Just uh, I've been thinking a lot as I've been talking about uh, dysfunction and what are the implications of rising energy prices and the intersection of climate policy and and social stability. And of course, in Kazakhstan, it's not so much climate policy, but energy prices, which of course are related to to climate policy, but energy prices, which were the final straw in leading to the resignation of the prime minister in, in Kazakhstan and the huge protests. And it's not a direct example of the implications, the potential implications of climate policy, but it is an interesting thing to be aware of, to think in places where energy is, energy costs are subsidized, where energy makes up a significant part of the economy, what happens when it becomes more expensive? This is inevitably energy does have to become more expensive eventually in the long run. Like that's just sort of simple economics, or rather I should say fossil fuel. Yeah based energy. But yeah, fossil-based energy has to become more expensive. So this is it's an interesting example, but it's a place where it wasn't, this temporary spike was not handled smoothly. Climate activists have gotten, gotten a bad rap in the past as tree huggers, and they've been labeled as extremists. But now that the governments, the public sector, society in general is getting behind the fact that climate change is real, does that lend credibility, do you think, to some of these organizations and individuals who have been out on the fringe before now? So I think what's interesting about the climate movement and climate activists is just the, the broad spectrum of activism. There are people, say the Extinction Rebellion people, who are standing, climbing aboard planes and getting in the way of the subway and saying, we need to decarbonize now. I don't think that they're mainstream. I don't think that you know this sort of newfound recognition around climate has made them mainstream, though I think there's a whole interesting discussion to be had about how does that feed into the, the bigger dynamic. But I think a lot of the people who are more in the center and certainly, I don't want to say conservative, but have more sort of market-based approaches to climate, they definitely, I think, have become more, quote unquote, mainstream uh, as a result of the moment. So 
it's certainly a new dynamic for climate activism in which climate activists have newfound, I don't want to say power, but newfound, they're central to the public policy discussion in a way that they perhaps weren't in the past. And getting back a little bit to what you've talked about before with involving the political and the governmental sector in moving the needle on this, do you think they're, the mandates and the benchmarks that they're setting are realistic in any, or are there certain countries that are overreaching or underreaching in terms of what they're setting for the next several years? It's all of the above. It's super complicated. I mean, you could run country by country. So you look at a place like the U.S., which has this 50% emissions reduction from 2005 levels by 2030 that was set by the Biden administration. And certainly without Build Back Better, there's no clear roadmap uh, to get there. It's definitely technically feasible, but they haven't exactly laid out the politically viable way to do it. Again, particularly if this Build Back Better legislation doesn't pass. I think you look at a place like the EU, which has a very clear roadmap, a very clear regulatory framework to meet their 55% emissions reduction by 2030. It's all laid out. You can go through and assess the down to the very minutia of policy, and they're still working out some of the details, but it's all pretty clear. And so there's a pretty big contrast between those, all of which is to say, I think that's a spectrum of commitments where you have some that are very unclear and ambitious, and some that are a- ambitious and clear. And then, of course, there are some that that are not ambitious at all. And uh, you could look at a place like Russia, for example. But it's so it's a really complicated picture. It's the, the long yeah. and short of it. <laughs> so, Justin, if there was one major idea you would like business leaders and decision makers in the energy sector to take away from our conversation today, what would that be? Let me say this. My job is to think about, or the way I've conceived of my job description, my beat, as we call it in the industry, is to think about the sort of place where policy, private sector, society all meet, and they all interact. And I go to energy conferences, I talk to oil and gas leaders, I talk to renewable leaders, and I, I would just say to make sure that, of course, you're going to do all those things, you're going to engage with your industry, but to, to think outside the box to make sure that you have a, a finger on the pulse of how society is, is feeling, how consumers are feeling, even if you operate in a B2B space, to to think carefully about how all of these things interplay in a way that I think sometimes can get lost when you're when one is just constantly in the bubble of whatever they operate in. That that's the perspective I try to provide in my reporting. And I, I think it's important to to be mindful of that in a way that I think sometimes can be lost for uh, people in their in their field. And speaking of your reporting, I know you've done a lot of articles on this for time. When you've been researching your articles and coming up with abstracts or ideas, is there one in particular that's really stuck in your mind as being uh, significant or surprising in any way? I think a, an interesting thing that I'm thinking about right now is where are we in terms of emissions and how do we even begin to calculate this? And I, there's this idea that was suggested to me and I've been looking into that if you do add up the private sector commitments and progress that isn't really easily tabulated by the, the main entities that are charged with doing that, namely governmental entities, that we might be actually further along than, than the data would otherwise suggest. And so that's an interesting idea, a little nugget that I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about how to frame a story around that came to mind. 
And when you're talking with peers and other journalists who are covering this uh, industry or the climate change topic, or even those in the private and public sectors, is there something that they would disagree with that you find it to be important that in terms of the conversation or vice versa? Is there something that you disagree with that maybe they're talking about a little bit too much? I think similar to you asked the question about what I would tell industry leaders, and I think mm-hmm. The, the climate beat and the energy beat and, and everything within it can oftentimes be pretty siloed. And so if you spend all your time talking to climate activists, you're going to have a perspective that is, of course, heavily informed by climate activists. And if you spend all your time talking to oil and gas leaders, you're going to be informed pretty much by oil and gas people and that frame of thinking. And so one of the things I've tried to do is to bring all of these different perspectives together in a way that most people on the beat traditionally don't think about things. And so I think that is often something I see with colleagues at other places. And I, and to be clear, I respect them. And there's so much great work, even for people who are really, people who are really devoted to one area of coverage, that's incredibly important. But I do think that sometimes the bigger picture can be lost if you're just solely focused on speaking to, you know, one set of, of people. So it's a sort of a a meta answer to your question, but I think it's, I think it gets at it. So as we wrap up here, can you just leave us with any final thoughts as you're getting ready to write your next story or getting ready to move into the new year? COVID, how is COVID affecting what you're working on? Well, COVID, so COVID has been interesting because for the first really between March 2020 and my first vaccine shot, I was pretty much confined to to the, the basement, so to speak, and which made reporting hard. I think yeah. it's, from my perspective, it's about talking to people, getting out there, seeing things. And of course, we're dealing with all of these, how do we adjust for right now, which is a challenge for this coming year. But I'm hoping that this year can be a year where really get out into the world in a way that I haven't been able to do since 2019 and and see where things are in a way that there's huge information gaps, I I think, when it's hard to, say, get access to China or lots of places that are still closed off. And so hopefully 2022 will bring an opportunity to reconnect, perhaps offer new insight from actual on-the-ground reporting that hasn't been possible as of late. So that's what I'm hoping for 2022. Well, COVID aside, what are you working on right now in terms of story ideas or things that you think are going to be front and center as we move into 2022 for you anyway, as a journalist? Yeah, I think there's a a couple of things. One, I, I mentioned private sector. Where is the private sector, particularly as the we see this complicated picture in Washington with Build Back Better, when all that lands where is the private sector? How does the private sector either pick up the slack or, or serve as a partner to you know, implement these, uh, this legislation that comes out of Washington? So that's one huge topic. Another one is, is just money. We, it's part of what I just said, but there is so much money that has been allocated for recovery efforts, some of which you know, has been basically a blown opportunity. Uh, if you look at the OECD or IEA numbers, but there's still a lot of opportunity. There's still a lot of, we're talking about uh, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars that can be spent on energy initiatives. And so how does that all get spent? And so there's that's an opportunity, right, for like really rich on the ground stories. It's also an opportunity for a more meta analysis, but that's an area that I'm pretty eager to to dig into as well. 
Terrific. Thank you for your time today, Justin. And if people want to learn or our listeners want to learn more about your topics and what you're writing, I'm sure they can go to just time.com. Is that correct? Yeah, you can go to time.com and type in my name, Justin Warland, or you can find me on Twitter. That's, you know, Justin at Justin Warland on Twitter. But uh, it's been great chatting and I hope people will read some of my writing. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at siemens-energy.com forward slash podcast.